Well, today, as we continue our series in Exodus, we also continue from last week where we picked off the importance of meeting God face to face. And while that was just an invitation to meet him face to face, face to face, today is more of an exploration of what that looks like. It's the how, it's the what, it's the why of prayer. And I want to open with an intersection point of three moments right now. On the one hand, prayer is central in the Christian tradition. The theologian Martin Luther refers to religion, specifically Christian religion, as prayer and nothing but prayer. Another theologian, Frederick Schleiermacher, that's a hard name, says that to be religious and to pray, that is really one and the same thing. Think of the words of Paul, who says that we should pray without ceasing. We should never stop praying. Our lives should be marked and defined by prayer. And then perhaps it's no surprise that a recent theologian, Andrew Root, has said that the key ministry area of the pastor is to teach people to pray. The second point of intersection is that it seems like we are living in a cultural moment that is interested in prayer. Here's some of this research. In the West, in any given week, there are more people who will pray than people who will exercise, people who will drive a car, people who will go to work. Those things happen less than people who pray. Another point of research says that in specifically an American study, nearly half of America's population prays every single day, whether Christian or non-Christian, whether religious or non-religious. And I hear that, and personally, I'm honestly convicted. As someone who feels this increasing burden to pray, I am maybe getting to the point where I'm starting to pray even briefly every single day. There's some sort of cultural interest in prayer in a moment that is cynical about God, about religion, in a moment that does not want to believe in some sort of Christian conception of the world. There are still many people who are interested in prayer. But it leads me to my third intersection point. Most of us really struggle with it. Even if we will do things from time to time, little words here and there, there are some serious gaps in prayer. Could be a sense of insecurity. Could be a sense of unworthiness before God. Could be fear. Could be a perception of feeling foolish. Could be an uncertainty of what to say. Whatever it is, there are gaps in our prayer life. What we want to do today as we go through Exodus chapter 34 is to simply bring those questions and to allow the Spirit to mold us to become people of prayer. So jump with me to Exodus chapter 34, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. It's important here that as we talk about prayer, we actually just stop on God, on the person of God. The word Lord that's all capitalized in the text means that what's actually written is Y-H-W-H. It's the word we pronounce Yahweh. It's an indication of God's covenant relationship specifically with Israel. But this is a significant passage because to the Israelite people, this is one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament, that first portion of Scripture. It's what's referred to as the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. And why is that? Well, this is where Israel learns God's name. Names are really significant in Hebrew culture. They speak to an identity. So Israel is given their name, Israel, which literally means one who wrestles with God. And that becomes the identity of God's people for generations. They are a people who wrestle with God. And here we get to see who this God is. He's a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. As I go through this list, truthfully for me, this is the type of God that I feel like I long for. I remember uh, when I was a teenager, some of my friends had this like dating checklist that they would create. They would like picture out the perfect boy or girl that they would one day like to go out with and it would have different characteristics. Some of them might be like kind and compassionate. Other than others of them, I think my wife's was long flowing blonde hair. Unfortunately, she struck out on that one. Uh, but on these lists, you're kind of building out your ideal person. And I'm not a huge fan of this. I think it idealizes marriage. It says that everybody, I think it creates come perception that you should be married when that's not the conception that we're given throughout scripture. I also acknowledge maybe I was annoyed because I never felt like I could measure up to these lists. Again, maybe it was the hair thing. I'm not sure. Having said that, if I was to build a checklist of the type of God that I would love to serve, I think Exodus 34 actually displays that. One who is definitively loving and compassionate one who is forgiving and exponentially more forgiving than his justice and his punishment on the guilty, but also who doesn't just like let people who do like evil, disastrous things just kind of go to the side and say, no, it's fine. Who actually just like acknowledges, no, this is not okay. I think this is the type of God that I would long to serve. I think it's important that we sit here. And then I think it's important to see what happens with Moses next. So read this in Exodus 34, starting at verse 8. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Here's the pathway that I think I see. Prayer requires revelation before response. 
Prayer requires revelation before response. Here's what I mean by that. You see this picture of who God is, his name declared, and then you see Moses' response. Another way to look at this is you see this picture of God that in his name, he's a deeply relational God. He's merciful and he's compassionate. He is loving. He is forgiving. But you also see a God who perhaps our culture struggles with to believe. See, if this is a God who we've been told time and time again is a relational God, we've heard this message over and over again, that Jesus wants to have a relationship with you, what do you do when you can't recognize that relationship? I was given a book recently by a friend who's not a Christian, and it's a bit of a sacrilegious book. It's written from the quote-unquote childhood best friend of Jesus, uh, and it's kind of filling in the gaps that we do not have of Jesus. Again, totally fictional tale, and the author acknowledges this. There's a moment where the, past, the, the author writes a passage that he acknowledges he just wanted to write because he was curious what would have been the case of Jesus' new kung fu, that kind of book. And while it is a projection of like 21st century values onto the person of Jesus from the first century um, of Israel, what I think it shows is some of our present cultural moments issues with faith in Jesus. Here's one thing that stood out to me. Jesus would continually go and speak to the Father and come back frustrated because he didn't hear anything back. He would try and pray and felt like he was met with absolute silence, a blank wall, and he wondered if there was anyone on the other side. And I do think that's an accurate picture of not just like our surrounding culture's view of prayer to God, but also just for many of us, we wonder if that's true when we come to God in prayer. We're uncertain if he actually, we're uncertain if he actually meets us there. Here's what I think is significant going on in this passage and why it matters that revelation comes before response. Jump up with me to verse 21 of chapter 33. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. On the one hand, it's a passage that's wanting to talk about like the splendor of God, that humans cannot stand before the face of God, that actually like if you was to show them Everything but who he is, they wouldn't be able to stand. We wouldn't be able to stand. But he also says, I will show you my back. I will show you essentially the trail that I leave behind. You will see me through what I have done. There's a pathway here that indicates how we pray. And it talks about revelation and then response. You get to see this in Moses. He gets this picture of who God is. Compassionate, merciful, loving, forgiving. In fact, this is the first time that Moses has been able to hear about this forgiving God. And what happens? Well, he lashes, latches on to that forgiving peace. He says some things that he's already known. Let the Lord go in the midst of us. We are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and sin. Moses hasn't been able to pray that before because he didn't know it. Here's the point that I'm trying to get at. I think oftentimes when we wrestle through, where are you, God? I can't hear you. We have some misconceptions about how the voice of God works. We hear stories about people who have like this direct message from God in their ear, which does happen, but they are unique and they are stories because they seem so significant and so rare. On the other hand, we have what is true of like, 
pretty much every single saint throughout human history of people who have just like really devoted themselves to God, who talk about like what we might call the dark night of the soul, where they just go through a season where they just feel like God is distant and they don't hear from him at all. That's also true. But I do think there's genuine space to hear from God and actually recognize what he's saying to us personally. And it comes to this idea of revelation and response. Here's what it looks like. I think too often when we come to God in prayer, we're just trying to wait for a certain voice to come. If God comes through the trail that he leaves behind, if we see him by his back, if we see him through the things that he said, what we actually need to do is to come to, what is this trail that you're leaving behind? When I pray, what I'm frequently doing is I'm opening up a passage of scripture and I'm reading it and I'm asking God to do the same thing that happened to Moses. Lord, would you reveal something that I should latch onto in this present moment? When I do what we'll call devotions, when I sit in the morning and read scripture, I'm reading through a couple chapters of the Bible and I'm just asking, Lord, what are you wanting to like pull out of this today for me? And then I write down that verse and I just chew on it a little bit. When I preach, this is a similar thing that I do. I'm praying through a passage of scripture and just asking, Lord, what needs to be brought out? And in fact, I pray those things too. Before I ever preach them, I pray these things out. And the more that I do this, the more that I actually get to learn to recognize vo God's voice, the more that I actually like remember scripture and remember the things that he's done and the things that he said, and those come to me in specific moments. I think this is the specific way that we can learn to hear God's voice is to recognize that he comes and he actually shows us, our, shows us his back, the things that he has done. So all I want to do is I just want to give us a little bit of space, maybe 30 seconds, and we're just going to put Exodus 34, 6 and 7 on the screen. And you're just going to get a little bit of time to see what is it that sticks out to you. We'll see you shortly. Thanks so much for leaning into that. Talked about one potential gap in prayer that is our inability to hear from God. Here's another potential gap, and we're gonna to turn to verse 10 to see it. And he that is God said, behold, I am making a covenant. I'm making an, a, a relational moment with you. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. This at first kind of looks like the picture of prayer that we want. We hear from God directly. We pray to him, and then there are wondrous things that he does in response. We hear the stories. These are the types of stories I think that we hear of people who in far off nations need God to show up, provide huge financial support, perform a miracle in front of their eyes. These are the stories of prayer that we hear and we want to latch onto ourselves. But I just want to note specifically the types of wonders that God is talking about here. He says, 
I will do marvels such as, not have been, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. All the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. God is going to do an amazing thing with Israel. And then he lists out a whole bunch of rules and regulations for them to follow. What's going on here? God is saying, listen, there's going to be an incredible thing that's going to be done, but the specific thing that's going to be amazing about it is going to be about you, Israel. You are going to live in a certain way. In other words, the people of God are the power of God. God's power is revealed in his people. They're going to live in a certain type of way that the nations around them are going to be just like blown away by who this God is. And it sounds good in theory, doesn't it? How good is it actually going? Would you say that the nations look at Christians and say, man, isn't that an awesome God? Probably not. It's a lot of negative perception around Christians. It's a lot of failure of Christians, a lot of public failure and a lot of hidden failure, a lot of big, high-profile, celebrity pastor type of failure, and also just like the face-to-face, -face, bitter, hypocritical type of Christians that people have in their heads. I also want to acknowledge that, man, there are some beautiful people out there. It's not true that Christians are just like the scum of the earth and the scum of the earth and the issue with our world. Like there are people who follow Jesus who have genuinely been transformed by him. And the question is, if this is God's plan, if his people are intended to be his power on earth, how do we actually, how do we actually step into that? I think it's important to note that it's not going to be through one of our favorite tools today, and that's mass marketing. It's not going to be through some public media campaign. Jesus might have been one of the worst propagandists to ever live. And yet he's one of the, he is the most influ, influential human of all time. Jesus did not, at least to our knowledge, write anything down, record anything. We have nothing written from Jesus himself. We have some letters of some things that like within a few, like a few years afterwards, people started to write down regarding this way of Jesus and following him. But it took decades for his followers to realize we should probably record some of these things for other people around to know this story. This is not a propaganda machine. And I think that's an important word for us to hear when we are used to like the primary influence being like mega corporations or massive governments pushing particular uh, voices, particular narratives. This is actually not the primary pathway of transformation according to scripture. You know what it is? Look at the rules and the laws that are going to be in there. I'm not going to read them all for you, but if you have a Bible or a device in front of you, this is what's called the Code of Festivals. It starts in verses 11 to 16 with a recognition of, we be careful of the festivals of the nations around you. It jumps in verse 18 to Israel's feast of unleavened bread. It jumps in verse 22 to the feast of weeks and the feast of ingathering. In verse 25, the feast of Passover. It's talking about festivals. And why is it talking about this? What happens in a festival? What's well, the place where you gather with others? 
It's the place where you actually meet others. It's this relational environment devoted to worship. Festivals were going to be what other nations would see of Israel. You think about it, like, what do I know about my neighbors? Besides the ones that I actually have, like, friendships with, what do I know about my neighbors? I know the times when they have people over and they got music pumping. I know the one, like, down the road, they like that house EDM stuff, they're like, that just, like, reverberates throughout the entire neighborhood. I know the one around the corner, they're like a country family. Like, when they got people over, they're just blasting those country tunes with that, like, girl in the pickup truck stuff. That's all they listen to. I know that there's one, like, directly across from us that's just, like, interested in, like, basic white girls girl mainstream pop. That's all they listen to. I know this because I know them by their gathering point. I know them by their festivals. What God's teaching Israel is saying, listen, it's not going to be about like some sort of snap miracle that I'm going to do that's going to amaze the nations. It's going to be a transformed people. God is less interested in snap miracles than he is in transformed people. He wants people to live a certain type of way. So you think about the perception of Christians in this world, it's not going to be changed through some sort of mass marketing campaign, through some sort of like propaganda genius. It's going to be changed in neighborhoods and workplaces. It's going to be changed at dinner tables and in garages, on park benches and basketball courts. It's going to be changed in relational environments where people step also into acknowledging the worship of their God. People of God are the power of God. Here's how obvious God wants to make it for Israel. Read verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face." Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with them, with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the faces of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Moses' face shines more literally, his face shot forth beams. Here's the thing, essentially what God's doing. He's saying, listen, you got to understand this, Israel. Like, it's about who you are going to be. You as a people are going to be by the way you live, like proclaiming to the nations who I am. And Israel, like, if you missed the point, let me shoot laser beams out of Moses' face so you get to see, like, I'm going to go out to the nations. This is the point of it. This is what happens when you spend time in the presence of God. He is the master of subtlety, right? Like laser beams out of Moses' face. Get the point, Israel. Man, it's fascinating how they respond. 
They're terrified. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> Laser beams. But, they, but they, they get Moses to put the veil back on. I just think this is so typical of God's people, right? Like Israel's finally reached the point we want the presence of God. In chapter 33, they just desperately realize we need you, God. We need you. And here in chapter 34, they're like, we want you, God. But if this is about being like a light to the nations and shining forth outwards, we are not interested in that. And it's actually their fear that keeps them that way. I think that's such a typical image of where we are. Is that, yes, there's this invitation to be a light to the nations, but in our own fear, we would actually lack the courage to live that way. Here's an important thing that I think we need to see when it comes to prayer. Prayer cannot be separated from social action. It just can't. Too often, I think, if we reach the point finally where, like, I want to spend time with God, we finally sit in our, like, privatized little huddles, our secret circles, and it actually never reaches the point of mattering out there mattering in the environments that we go out to. God gives Israel this image. Listen, you're, when you spend time with me, you will be a literal light to the nations. And Israel, in their fear, rejects it. I think if you've been paying attention, uh, at some point, I think we can all understand where Israel is. It can feel like a crushing weight, right? To see the vision and the splendor of God but to be crushed by the weight of expectation upon us. Listen, it's your job. It's your task. And if you do not shine a light to the nations, you failed. Man, does it feel like a crushing weight of expectation. Fast forward over a thousand years, and there's a guy named Paul that's going to be reflecting on this. Paul is what's called the apostle to the Gentiles. And those are some big words, so let me lay it down for you. Paul had encountered the person of Jesus after Jesus had been resurrected and ascended. Paul had been someone who was against the ministry of Jesus. Jesus came. He was a Jewish rabbi who essentially said, listen, like, I'm going to gather all people, people from all nations, every tribe, every tongue. They can come to me because by my death and resurrection, I'm going to save all of creation. And Paul himself, a Pharisee, a Jewish rabbi, said that this is not okay, and he actually started to be involved with murdering anybody who followed this Jesus. Paul meets Jesus on what's called the Damascus Road. You can look this up in the book of Acts. His entire life is transformed. And what I'm just picturing is Paul like meditating and processing here on Exodus 34 about his own experience. Something happened to Paul when he saw Jesus and within him, he was transformed. And I think he couples that experience with this passage in Exodus 34, and we're going to read it from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, that is a hope in Jesus, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what, of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that is the laws of Moses, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lays, lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul, from his own personal experience of beholding the glory of the risen Jesus, recognizes the transformation that can come when you actually turn to him and the way that you yourself are transformed into that same image. You are transformed to become like Jesus. I think that's actually the image that Paul is going for. He repeatedly comes back to that word glory while he's been meditating on Exodus 34. You know what the word glory means in Exodus 34? It's the vision of God's name. The glory of the Lord is revealed as the one who is merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the children, of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He sees this vision of God, this glory, and says, We are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We, as we see God, are being transformed into this same image. We are becoming transformed from the inside out. And this is the heartbeat of prayer. Prayer transforms us from the inside out. Think of a story of a friend of mine who got to witness this in her dad. As she was growing up, her dad was busy, no doubt wanting to provide for his family, but not very present at home, relatively apathetic, angry, distant. Not the type of dad that uh, she would say she had a strong relationship with. And then over time, something started to change. There's a shift of a dad who was not so much defined by anger as he was by gentleness, defined not so much by distance as he was by presence, started to be actually marked by someone who's deeply interested in the lives of his wife and kids, who showed up, who was loving and compassionate. The way that my friend tells this story through tears is she knows the exact moment that it shifted. She started to wake up in the morning and she would see her dad in his chair, spending time in scripture, like seeing the revelation of God and praying in response. And he just started to be transformed from the inside out. See, that's what we're seeing here in Exodus 34. That's what we're seeing here in 2 Corinthians. It's a transformation that happens when you come to God. And he transforms you from the inside out. It's also the way that the burden's lifted. See, before the expectation was to say, listen, Israel, go and do this, and inevitably they failed. Paul's just told us, listen, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You do not have to bear the weight of expectation. Jesus is the one who perfectly displayed to the nations who God is. And now your role is to simply come before God and be transformed by him from one degree of glory to the next. Become more and more that person who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what happens. I think of a quote from a uh, 4th century monk, Abba Nilus. Prayer is the seed of gentleness and the absence of anger. 
this is what we are looking for in prayer. It might also look like radical miracles and healings being performed around the nations, yes, but centrally, it's about how we ourselves are transformed. And the final thing is that Paul says, listen, there's a veil that can be put up where we actually resist witnessing the presence of God and like being a light to the nations. So what would that veil be? For Israel in Exodus 34, it was fear. I think some other reasons for us today could be distraction. Our phones can actually be a veil where we resist the presence of God. I think another one can be a, a lack of uh, confidence in prayer. Perhaps others uh, are coming to mind for you. The simple question that we leave you with today is what is the veil that is preventing you, in Paul's words, from turning to God and being transformed from the inside out, from one degree of glory to the next? Whatever that veil is, the final invitation, take off the veil, stand before God in that revelation and response rhythm, and be transformed into the image of his son, Jesus. We'll see you next week.